0: Unless you count dogs, I've never been a dad, and I'm not a ragingly talented singer-songwriter-instrumentalist. I'm just a schnook. Well, hi everybody, this is Sean, and I welcome you to chapter 34 of my life story and book on podcast form, Autobiography of a Schnook. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, This is going to be kind of uh, weird because I had originally started recording and producing another Chapter 34. This is the Chapter 34 that I wasn't planning, but something came up that made me think, I'd better do this. So when you listen to Chapter 35 and you hear me refer to, say, the previous episode in the non-music segment, I didn't record the music segment yet. I'm actually talking about Chapter 33. Now, I know that in Chapter 33, I said I would do one more episode and then call it quits for the summer. Actually, I'm going to do one more episode after this and then call it quits for the summer and then come back in the fall, simply because this is an episode that I thought I should record, but I'd rather end the pre-summer on a much happier note. Uh, The thing is, my dad died. I am recording this a few days later. He died on June 9th, eh, sometime around 1030-ish in the morning. It was um, pretty surreal. And just to give you a forewarning, uh, if I don't sound sad, uh, the truth is I haven't really been that sad that much in the last several days. And uh, there are a couple of reasons for that. One reason is that I grew up knowing that in a perfect world, parents do not live to see their children die. Ergo, I was kind of expecting to live to see my parents leave this earth. Tragically, that was not the case for my parents. they I think I mentioned this in a previous episode. In fact, I'm pretty sure I did. But I actually have two brothers. If I just simply say my brother, I'm talking about my brother Scott. He's 10 years older than me, almost 10 years older than me, just eh, about a month shy of 10 years older. But there's also my brother Jay, who died uh, as a six-month-old in 1967. There are all kinds of things wrong with him, and he probably wouldn't have lived very long. Maybe in today's technology, he could have uh, lived a pretty normal life, except he was born deaf, which means I probably would be fluent in ASL by now, but... Anyway, that's neither here nor there, but my parents did sadly have to live through losing a child, and they never got over it. My dad lived to be 81, and my mom is 78, and they never got over that. That's such a tragic, terrible thing to have happen. But it was really surreal. I was, uh, I've was i been working at home since March of last year for an obvious reason. So I was home. It was Wednesday, June 9th, and I got a call from my mom huh, sometime in the noon hour, I think it was. And she was sobbing and all she said was, Sean, I need you to come here right now. And my first thought was, oh shit, this must mean dad died. And the thing about that is he had recently been diagnosed with cancer, as was my mom actually. Uh, my dad was diagnosed with uh, bladder cancer and ureter cancer actually. And uh, he had surgery to remove the tumor off of his bladder. And my mother had a surgery scheduled already during the time he was recovering, and she wasn't going to change that schedule. And in fact, I remember uh before she went into surgery, my mom called me and said, uh, listen, I want you to come down here and stay with dad while I have my surgery. And I said, do you need me to stay overnight? She said, yeah, if you could, please do that. So I said, no problem. And basically, the message that I was hearing that she didn't actually say was, I want you to make sure dad doesn't blow up the house or anything. <laughs> But uh she had some I don't remember what her surgery was but my dad's surgery was to well try to remove the tumor on his bladder and it turned out they did they got all the cancer thank god but they also had to do some kind of surgery for his ureter and the thing is they wanted to remove the ureter they said that would be the ideal thing but there are two things about that number 1 when you remove the ureter you also have to take the kidney out so he would have to live the rest of his life with just one kidney And he heard from at least one doctor. It's like, yeah, there are a lot of people who have full lives with just one kidney, so don't even think about that. But the other catch was that given his age and his medical history, if he were to have that surgery, there would be a significantly elevated risk that he would have a heart attack or a stroke on the operating table. So he very wisely, in my opinion opted for not having that surgery. So instead, what they did uh, just recently, actually a couple of weeks ago, they did a laser surgery in an attempt to kill the cancer on his ureter. He just got the pathology report back not long before he died and found out that they got all of it. They got all of it. And by the way, my mother's cancer also they were able to get rid of and she just has to go in for periodic follow-ups. Thank God. So that was a huge relief thing is there were some side effects from his surgery and I know that one of the side effects my mother told him well go sit in a hot bathtub and he wouldn't do that next time he saw his doctor he said hey I got this problem and the doctor said you know what you should do you should sit in a bathtub with hot water and so he's like okay okay and he had a problem he slipped and fell in the bathtub because it was so freaking slippery so when my mom called I thought that might have been what had happened I thought oh man he must have slipped and fell in the bathtub and Really screwed himself up, but I wasn't sure. Of course, you know, my and I was still thinking, okay, Dad is gone. I don't have a dad anymore. So now here's my personal situation. Well, I don't know if I'd say situation. Anything's a situation, really. But when Lisa and I moved to Chicago in 2006, we got rid of our cars and just got one car for the two of us. And honestly, folks, I really have no idea how we lived with two cars. Paying for two cars, insuring two cars, parking two cars. It's so much better with just one. I mean, it helps that we live in a big city with mass transit and we have a lot of things in walking distance, but still. That combined with the fact that even though schools here in Chicago are back in session, for whatever reason, on Wednesdays, at least high schools are still remote. So, Lisa was home, ergo our car was home. Uh, Lisa takes the car to work because, well, She could theoretically take mass transit, but number one, she would have to take multiple mass transit vehicles and the trip would take forever in a day. And number two, she has so much stuff she has to take with her that it really makes much more sense to just drive. But she was home, so I was able to get off the phone with my mom and then sprint down to the garage and take the car. And of course, I'm thinking, crap, this must mean my dad is gone. And just that thought just had me shaking intensely pretty much the whole trip down there. Man, there were a couple of times I think I almost got into an accident that was my fault. So uh, anybody on June 9th who was uh, driving near Lakeshore Drive and you almost got hit by a, a Jeep Cherokee, I sincerely apologize. That was totally my fault. I was having a little bit of a hard time concentrating, understandably, I hope. And I remember thinking, man, something that might calm me down is making sure that I'm listening to a good podcast, something that makes me laugh, something that's entertaining. I was listening to Office Ladies when my mom called. Office Ladies, for those of you who don't know, is a podcast about the American version of the TV show The Office, hosted by Jenna Fisher and Angela Kinsey. And they were both on The Office, and they're best friends in real life. And they go episode by episode about the uh, the show, and they talk about behind-the-scenes stuff and what was cut, and you know things like that. And I'm thinking, okay, I can listen to the rest of Office Ladies, but then something else occurred to me. Those of you who are regular listeners of this podcast may remember my friend Ferg, who was on two episodes with me. He hosts the Atari 2600 Game by Game podcast, and I've been a big fan of the Atari 2600 ever since it came out, and I never gave it up. I never stopped playing it since the early 80s. So I listened to his podcast, and the thing about listening to that show... When I'm listening to Ferg, number one, he makes me laugh a lot. There's so much to love about that show. And also, number two, I feel that I'm in the middle of a really cool conversation with a good friend. And I think that's why so many people love his podcast, because I think a lot of people feel that way about it. I figured that's going to be the one that's going to make me feel good. And sure enough, it really did. It really made me feel good. I was laughing. I was enjoying it big time. And another thing that helped, Buckingham Fountain is my favorite landmark in Chicago. Those of you who aren't familiar with it, if you ever watched an episode of Married with Children, that's the big fountain that's in the opening credit sequence. It's in Grant Park, which is a huge, massive park between Lakeshore Drive, which is the expressway that runs from my neighborhood on the north side of Chicago, all the way down to the far south side of Chicago, and... The downtown area. And basically, anytime I have to go somewhere south, that's the road to take. So I'm driving down Lakeshore Drive, and I pass Buckingham Fountain, and I see it's all turned on with the water shooting out all over the place. Last year, they did not turn the fountain on for an obvious reason. Well, not really an obvious reason. I don't know why they didn't turn that thing on. I mean, they were canceling everything else in the city, All I could think was, come on, Lightfoot, uh, Lightfoot being Lori Lightfoot, our mayor, give us something for God's sake. But no, they wouldn't turn it on. Usually what they do is at the beginning of the season, they have a big ceremony down by the fountain hosted by Tom Skilling, who, for those of you who don't know, is the chief meteorologist at WGN in Chicago. And he is the biggest weather nerd on the face of the earth. That is his life, weather. His number one love in life is weather. In fact, he, he he lives with two other people. I think one of them is another WGN personality. And when people ask him about, like, you know, is he seeing anybody? Is he married? They say, no, he is not married. The weather is his wife. <laughs> and he's also one of the nicest guys, one of the nicest, funnest guys in the world, too. So that's always a big deal, having him host the uh, turning on ceremony. And they did that again this year, just recently. So when I was driving down Lakeshore Drive and I looked off and I saw the fountain on it, oh my god, it felt so good. It felt so good seeing that for the first time in what, a year and a half, was it? But still, I'm driving and I'm thinking, man, this is taking forever to get there. Mom's gonna wonder if I'm okay. She's gonna think I was in an accident or something. But that was just the mental effect that this whole thing had on me, was that I was thinking it was taking forever, but I was looking at the timer on the podcast on the dashboard. The entire episode, I think, was an hour and 19 minutes long, and by the time I got to the general area where I was going to be exiting for where I was going, there was still probably a good 20 minutes left, so it didn't really take me that long after all. But when I got near the exit, the phone rang, and it was my mom. It showed up on the dashboard, so I I was hands-free, and I answered the phone, and my mom sounded a lot more composed, and she said, hey, I forgot to tell you go to the emergency entrance. And I, I said, wait, what emergency entrance? She said at the hospital. I said, oh, you're at the hospital? She said, yeah, I'm at St. Joe's. I said, oh, okay. And, uh, she told me to go to the emergency entrance and tell the uh, person at the desk that I was looking for her regarding my father, You know, which I did. I pulled in, I parked. I had to wait in line for a really long time because there was one person in front of me. And I think she was checking in or something. It took just forever to get the details out. So I thought my mom might've been getting worried. So I sent her a quick text to said, hey, I'm here, I'll get with you ASAP. But I got up to the desk. I said, hey, I'm Sean. Here's my mom's name. Here's my dad's name. She said, oh, okay, yeah, we were expecting you. If you could just wait here, we will get somebody to escort you to the room. I said, okay, no problem. So I went in, I used the bathroom because I really had to go. And I stepped out, and there was a guy there. He said, hi, are you Sean? I said, yeah, I'm Sean. He said, hi, I'm TJ. I'm the hospital chaplain. Now, the thing is, when my mom called and said they were at the hospital, I thought, okay, maybe I still do have a dad. Maybe at that point she was just a little panicky, and now that he's at the hospital, he might be stable or something. My first thought was, mm, shit, he's gone. Because the way I see it, if the chaplain greets you, it's not going to be good news. So he took me down the hall and into a... Room And there was my mom, not made up or anything, mask over her face, obviously, because it's a hospital. And I just gave her a big hug. And she was in tears. And after I hugged her, she just said, Dad died. And I just kind of nodded because I kind of figured that was the news. I said, Mom, what happened? Did he fall? And then she really quickly, frighteningly quickly, composed herself and said, Well, here's what happened. Your dad went out to do some shopping. He had some errands he had to run. And then he came back at around 10 o'clock. And then the phone rang. It was our neighbor, June. So I talked to her for a while, and dad got up and walked away. And then after about 15, 20 minutes, I noticed that he wasn't there. And so she basically looked for my dad and found him collapsed. and." Kind of wedged in a weird position in the wall. She wanted to do some chest compressions, but she couldn't. She's a nurse, so she knows chest compressions very well. And he was too heavy for her to move. He wasn't a heavy man by any means, but for my mom, yeah, he was. But she got on with nine one one and just frantically told them, "Get over here right now!" And and of course, the the fire department arrived. The paramedics were there. Uh, She rode over to the hospital with the fire captain, and she said, "Look, just tell me straight." Is there any chance he's going to come out of this? And uh, the captain said, "Well, I honestly, I really don't know, but probably depends on how long he was like that." Um, but of course, he didn't come out of it. My mother was really feeling terribly guilty. Like, what if I had uh, gotten there a few minutes earlier? I could have saved him. Or I didn't say this to him today. I didn't say that to him last night. Uh, I could have hugged him harder this morning. You know, things like that. You know, I understandably, you know, when. Something like that just happens. Just so many emotions and feelings run through your uh, your mind. And she did say that the doctor who worked on him at the hospital said that judging by the looks of everything, he probably had cardiac arrest and was gone before he even hit the floor. And he told my mom, look, there's nothing anybody could have done. So I had to remind her about that. And she's like, yeah, yeah, you're right. That That is what he said. In fact, she said that the doctor even added... There's only one person who determines when we die. And she said, well, yeah, that's true. When when it's your time, it's your time. That's all there is to it. But yeah, that was a pretty crazy day, obviously. I messaged my coworkers and said, look, I have an emergency. I don't know when I'm going to be back at work. I don't know if it'll be tomorrow or Monday or what, but I'll keep you posted. But yeah, while I was um over there in that room, oh good grief. That I don't know, there was a fancy word for that room, something religious. Uh, it was a Catholic hospital, so yeah, that's why it was religious. Uh there was this big poster that had a picture of a kid who looked just like Justin Bieber. So, I don't know what that was all about. But TJ came in and talked with us and said, "Here's a list of different services you can use and if money is a object. You can go with these people. They're inexpensive and all this. And, but while we were in there, my mom said, I want to see dad one last time. Um, now if you want to wait, that's fine. Or if you want to go now, that's fine. And I said, well, mom, here's the thing. The last time I saw dad, he was alive. And I really would like to keep it that way that the last time I saw him, he was alive. I don't want to see my dead dad. And she said, I understand. She said, That's totally understandable. When your cousin Renee died, your uncle Ron didn't want to see her dad either. So that's totally understandable. And she said that while she was there, she wanted to cut a lock of his hair because when my grandmother died, she regretted not doing that. So she could have a piece of her mom with her at all times. So she wanted to do that for my dad. And uh, when she came back, she said that while she was cutting his hair, she said to him, say hi to my mom and our baby for me. And. Yeah, that's gotta be a tough thing to do. Oh my god. And, uh, she told me that I probably made the right decision by not going to see him one more time because she says he didn't look like himself. She said that if she hadn't been told that that was my dad, she wouldn't have recognized him at all. She said the only thing that looked familiar about him was his arms, I guess. Uh I never really thought about my dad's arms looking any particularly distinguished from anybody else's, but... Yeah. But yeah, I stayed with my mom for a while. My brother was going to rush over from Ohio. In fact, he called when he got back to his house from work. And uh, my mom handed the phone to me and said, here, your brother wants to talk to you. And he said, look, are you going to be there for a while? I said, yeah, of course. And he said, good, because I really don't think mom should be alone right now. If you could hang out for a while, at least until somebody else gets over there. I said, well, yeah, of course. No, No worries about that. And when things like this happen, you don't realize it until it actually does happen. But there's so much that goes on. Not just your own personal mourning for your loss, but my mother was just kind of itemizing all the things that she's realizing she has to do. She has to cancel subscriptions, insurance. Uh, She's realizing that there's going to be less income coming in. And oh my God, can I afford to live here anymore? And just so much that goes on that you'd never really appreciate. But over the last few days, she's been doing okay. She's been keeping her spirits up, and um, you know, I'm. I feel good talking to her because she's thinking a little bit clearer every day. And uh, what else have you? And uh, yeah, it's just so weird because my dad had just been given the all clear from cancer, and my mom had just been given the. Well, I don't know if you want to call it all clear because you know it's not really clear until you're over it for five years. But still, though, they were given really good news my mom said that the same day that he died, she was thinking of when he got home, telling him, look, uh, we both got some really good news. You know, we know we can breathe easy now. So why don't we take a little trip for a few days? Cause they haven't gone on a trip in a long time, but oh, uh, so much for that. But yeah, and that's the way it was. And man, seriously, I mentioned earlier that, uh, One of the reasons I wasn't really all terribly sad about this, I mean, this is a tragedy. This is terrible. It is a sad thing that happened, and I wish it didn't, obviously. But another reason that I haven't been really that sad is that I feel very, very grateful. I seriously did not expect that my dad would survive 1993. I don't want to sound like I'm bad-mouthing my dad at all because I'm just telling the truth he did not take care of himself at all. He smoked two packs, like sometimes breaking into a third pack for many, many years. I even asked him one day, I said, dad, why? when did you start smoking and why? He said, well, I was a teenager and just like anybody else who starts smoking, I did it because I thought it was cool. And he really regretted that because he got hooked. He got hooked. And I remember the first time he tried quitting smoking, and well, he actually stayed away from cigarettes for two weeks, and one day he decided, oh, one won't hurt. And he said when he took that first puff that first time after two weeks, he almost fell off his chair, because when you're not used to it, it, <laughs> it has that effect on you. And he said, well, soon after that, it became, oh, two won't hurt. And he went right back to his old habits. But And I remember at that time, he looked at me and he said, please, for the love of God, don't ever, ever start smoking. I said, Dad, I'm way ahead of you there. (laughs) I I never, ever once had the slightest desire for even curiously testing a cigarette or any other tobacco product, because number one, it smells terrible. Number two, pretty much all my life, it's been known that those things are dangerous. And number three, I'm pretty sure that I'm allergic to it. Uh, If I'm anywhere near tobacco smoke, I cannot breathe, and the inside of my body feels like it's on fire. My mom actually smoked for a while, too, but she quit back in 1979 when I was five years old. She told me that the reason she quit was she coughed up some green phlegm, and in the back of her mind, she thought, okay, I think maybe I should really start paying attention to these Surgeon General warnings. And she never had another smoke again. She said it was hard at first. Good lord, that was uh, 42 years ago she quit. and. She doesn't know how she ever lived like that before. Oh, I know I'm going off on a tangent, but still, uh, people who know me very well personally, they know that I clear my throat a lot more than most people do. It's because I, I don't know why, there's like a lot more frequent buildup in the back of my throat, so I'm clearing my throat a lot. My mother thinks that it may have been a side effect of her smoking when she was pregnant with me, so sometimes if she gives me a hard time, I'll turn the tables on her and say, well, I hear you, Mom, but remember, you smoked when you were pregnant with me. And then she said, but they told us it was safe and they even recommended it to calm us down. Oh, (laughs) boy. So, yeah. But anyway, I didn't think my dad would survive 1993 because he was just coughing like crazy, smoking like crazy. And I thought for sure things were just not going to be good. And of course, he did survive 1993 and every year up until now. So... I feel extremely lucky that I had my dad till he was 81 years old because I was surprised he even lived to see 61. And I took every day of that as a gift from God. So, yeah, yeah, I I was really lucky, very fortunate. I'm going to stop babbling right now. And uh, the next thing I'm going to talk about, I'm just going to talk about my dad and things I remember about him. And what more can I say? my father gary courtney was um one of the simplest no frills people that you'd ever meet very midwest very midwest he spent his entire life within probably about a 60 mile radius of chicago except for the two years in the navy of course He was as Midwest as you could get, really. Right down to his accent, he was as Midwest as you could get. He had that Great Lakes twang. I remember one time during my eight years living in New Jersey, I was back in Joliet visiting my parents and my brother, and I think my wife Lisa was with me too. But we had all gone out to dinner, and we got back home, and the phone rang, and my dad ran over to answer it. I had to imitate his phone answering voice. I said, hello. And sure enough, then my dad picks up the phone, yellow, and my brother almost fell to the floor laughing. So, yeah, you talk to my dad for more than about four seconds. You know he's from somewhere along the Great Lakes because he had that Great Lakes twang. And thing is, I don't really know much about his backstory because he didn't talk about his upbringing, his childhood very much. I knew his mother's name, but uh, his mother died long before I was ever born, so I never knew my paternal grandparents, and in fact, my father apparently never knew his father. He didn't talk a lot about his childhood and his upbringing and his background because, well, apparently he wasn't very proud of it. All I know is from what my mom told me. I remember once I was telling her that I was trying to research family history and try to look for announcements about his birth, his mother's obituary and things like that, and... I said, should I just ask dad? And she said, don't bother. He's never going to talk about it. But I'm just going to relay what I was told. His mother apparently had him when she was 16 years old. She played around a lot. She was raging alcoholic and apparently died at the age of 33-ish from cirrhosis of the liver. She was hardly in my dad's life at all. And from what I'm told, whenever he did see his mom, he didn't look at her as his mom. He thought of her as an older sister because they were pretty close in age, only a 16-year difference. His grandparents raised him, which I only learned the day he died, my mom told me. I thought for sure that his Aunt May and Uncle Arden raised him, but she said, no, his grandparents raised him. It's just that Aunt May and Uncle Arden he was very close to, and they were just absolutely dirt poor, just to give you an idea of how poor they were. For breakfast, his grandparents would give him a slice of white bread with some coffee poured over it. My mom said she once saw a picture of my dad taken when he was a child, and the shirt he was wearing had a big hole in it. It always made her sad to look at that picture because she could only think, oh my god, what a rotten childhood he had. He did go to St. Patrick's Central High School, which was a Catholic school. Well, still is, except it's now called Bishop McNamara High School down in Kankakee which is uh, 60 to 70 miles south of Chicago. Thing is, even back then when Catholic school tuition was dirt cheap, his family couldn't afford to send him there, but the priest insisted that he go to school there, and the priest made sure that his tuition was covered. He couldn't even afford to buy a suit for graduation, but a rich couple took pity on him and bought him one, but apparently that really embarrassed him. He was so embarrassed I talked earlier about how he smoked a lot and about when he started smoking, and he actually told me once that while he was in high school, since I'm talking about his high school life right now, he and his buddies would be walking through the hallway smoking, of course, and if one of the nuns happened to be approaching, one of the guys would say, palm it, and his friends would take their cigarettes and then crunch them up in their bare hands, and he never understood how they could possibly do that. He never did that. But anyway, he was in the Navy from uh, 1958 to 1960. That's something else I only just now learned. I thought he was in there for four years, but no, he only served two. He was uh, stationed on the USS Shangri La aircraft carrier uh, operating out of San Diego. He went all over the world Hawaii, Japan, I think parts of Africa, everywhere except I think Europe, actually. And I remember my brother uh, the day after my dad died. It just kind of amused or maybe even bemused him that my dad was on the Shangri-La because he said, what a crappy thing to have to be on the Shangri-La. Why would anybody be proud of that? Uh, I don't know exactly why he felt that way. I did a quick look up on Wikipedia and according to what I saw, it earned uh, two or pardon me, she earned two battle stars in World War II, decommissioned after World War II, recommissioned as an attack carrier after that decommissioned again in 1971, and then sold for scrap in 1988. The last time I talked to my dad, I actually asked him, hey, were you stationed in Point Loma? And the reason I asked him that is because when uh, Lisa and I go to San Diego, we go through Point Loma between the airport and where we usually stay. And last time we went to the airport, I noticed that there was a naval base in Point Loma. But dad said, no, it wasn't Point Loma, we were actually in North Island. And it turns out that North Island is right by the place we're going to be staying in San Diego when we go in December for Lisa's birthday. Dad further told me that when he enlisted, he was given a choice of either Naval Station Great Lakes, which is near Waukegan, Illinois, really far north in the state and on the shore of Lake Michigan, or San Diego. Now, the thing is, he wanted to go to Great Lakes because it was only a couple hours away from home, but they told him that there is a catch if you stay at Great Lakes, they told him, Great Lakes is under renovation now, so if you stay there, you're likely going to have to sleep on the floor. And he said, no thanks, I'll go to San Diego instead. The thing is, though, if I know my dad, given how easily he fell asleep in any situation, he probably would have been able to sleep on the floor with no problem. And sometime either the night he died or the morning after, my mom was going through some of his stuff and found an envelope with my dad's writing on it that said, uh, Do not open, this means you, and it had his name with S-N after it, so the way it looked, it was probably addressed to his Navy buddies. So she opened it, she saw a whole bunch of stuff in there, including a picture of my dad playing a drum in kind of a marching band thing, and wearing a diaper. Apparently, there was some kind of ritual that whenever they sailed around Cape Horn, the marching band would do something like that. They would uh, march up and down the ship playing in diapers. (laughs) I took a picture of that picture with my phone. I'll see if I can uh, post that in the online bibliography at schnookpodcast.com. And mom said that she asked him if he ever did any real sightseeing, if he got to do any touristy things or anything. And he said, well, I couldn't afford to. And he said that he couldn't afford to because instead of spending his stipends on himself, he'd send the money home so his grandparents could have something to live on. And despite only serving two years in the Navy, he mentioned it quite a lot. The Navy this, the Navy that. I haven't done this since I was in the Navy. That type of music was popular when I was in the Navy. Things like that. This was a thing when I was in the Navy. That was a thing when I was in the Navy. One time when I was a kid, I said, You know, Dad, you always say that everything is since I was in the Navy. He said, Let me show you something. He dug out an old record. It was a single called... since Gary went in the Navy. (laughs) He thought that was pretty amusing. Now, my dad was one of the simplest people on the face of the earth, yet he was also so complicated. He had very little wants, so it was pretty hard to shop for him for Christmas and his birthday. But I only learned recently just how poor it was when he grew up, so that poorness was probably why he never really wanted anything. He seemed pretty satisfied with what he had, thankful, that he always had a roof over his head, and he always did. Now, what my dad did for work, I mean, aside from when he was a kid and he actually got a job as a janitor's assistant at Maternity BVM, where I would eventually go to grade school, he had a 22-year career at Roper Corporation in Kankakee. There were two Roper divisions in that area. In Kankakee, Illinois, there was the Appliance Division, and in Bradley, there was the Farm Equipment Division. He worked for the Appliance Division. Well, one day, 22 years into his career there, they announced that they were moving to Georgia. Well, neither my dad nor especially my mom wanted to move to Georgia. In fact, she even told my dad, if you want to transfer to Georgia, I'm not going with you. But they were told either go to Georgia or collect unemployment, so he collected unemployment. He was unemployed for two years. He had a really hard time getting another job because that was around the time when, if you wanted a job, you had to have a college degree, which he did not have. Up until then, you could get a good job with just a high school diploma. Why he didn't use the GI Bill to go to school and get a degree, I have no clue. But eventually, he did get a job at a wiring company in Joliet. And of course, that's why we moved to Joliet, so he wouldn't have that 35 mile one way commute. But the thing is, They really treated him like garbage over there, right up until the day they laid him off. When he got laid off, another two years of unemployment. But during that time, he did use the GI Bill to take some computer courses at Joliet Junior College so he could make himself more marketable. He aced those courses, too, including the basic programming course he took. And I'm proud to say that I helped him get that A, too, because I was always a computer nerd and I had a Commodore 64. And I would let him use my computer to do his basic homework so he wouldn't have to go all the way to the college and use their computer lab. He could just spend his time doing the programs on the 64 and then when he was done, he'd go over to the college, type them in on their computers over there and he was done with it right there. He seldom touched a computer after that though, so he never learned how to use the internet or anything like that. Oh, and uh, during his time between jobs, he worked with me part-time at the library as a page and everybody loved him there. In fact, that that's a pretty common theme. People who meet my dad, they remember him very well for good reasons. And uh, they all loved him. Everybody loved him. Because I, I do have to say, he was a really, really nice guy. In fact, my brother's ex-wife, she doesn't mince words that she didn't get along with my mother. But anytime my dad was ever brought up and I happened to bump into her in situations, she would say, oh my God, your dad was always so nice to me. The thing about my dad is uh, he never said a bad thing about anybody, and if he ever did, he was truly, absolutely beyond pissed off about that person. In fact, I remember at a gathering somewhere a few years ago, we were somewhere where somebody was really getting on his nerves, so he walked over to where Lisa and I were and said, I had to get out of there. Such and such a person was just really driving me up the wall. And Lisa and I just looked at each other stone-faced, because we never heard my dad say that (laughs) about anybody before. but he eventually did get a full-time job at Cub Foods uh, which was a uh, big grocery store in the Midwest. There were, I think there are still a few left, but they moved out of uh, the Joliet area not terribly long ago. First he was a manager of security and maintenance, but uh, after a few years he became a cashier there, and that's where he retired from. And sometime during his Cub Foods tenure, it was pretty early on, uh, there were two Cub Foods in Joliet. There was one on North Larkin and one on South Larkin. He worked at the one on North Larkin, but my dad and I, we were in the one on South Larkin one night, and my dad was just kind of grumbling to himself about something. It was something really bothering him. I said, dad, what's the problem? He said, well, when I'm at work, At the other Cub Foods. This is how we do things. We see somebody, we see a customer, we smile and we greet them. We just say, hi, how are you? And he said, nobody here said a thing to us. We've been walking up and down the aisles for quite a while. And I kept that in mind. I kept that in mind as part of kind of a customer service training. So anytime from that point on, if I was at work and I saw a customer or even somebody who was working for the company, but not at that office, just happened to be visiting. I would just smile and say, Hi, hey, how are you? I kept that in mind. I want people. I want to provide good customer service any way I can. You just heard me talk about how people remember him and knew him and things. Well, the way my mom talks, he was a local celebrity practically. They'd be out to dinner. People would come up to him and say, Didn't you used to work at Cub Foods? I remember you. You were so helpful multiple times after he retired. My mother nagged him into getting a job, so he got a a job as a greeter, I think, at uh, the Sam's Club not far from their house. My dad, just like uh, um, a lot of guys, he was into sports, especially the New York Yankees. He was a diehard New York Yankees fan since the womb. He had baseball cards when he was a kid, including a Mickey Mantle rookie card. Mickey Mantle was his idol. Well, his Aunt May threw his baseball cards away, including that Mickey Mantle rookie card, and I think it scarred him for life, as it should. I remember in 1992, my brother and I took him to a White Sox-Yankees game at uh, the new Comiskey Park as a birthday Father's Day present. Scott told me, Look, this is a present to Dad, so we are rooting for the Yankees. I don't care about any allegiance you have to the White Sox. We're rooting for the Yankees. And all I could think was, please, as if I'd actually root for the White Sox anyway. (laughs) And where my parents moved to in 2006, there are quite frequently bus trips to White Sox games, so anytime the Yankees were in town, my dad and my brother would go. One thing I'm really super proud of and just very happy for my dad about is uh, during the time I lived in New Jersey, one year when my parents came out to visit, I took my dad to a Yankees game as kind of a early Father's Day present. He was really looking forward to that game. He put on a Yankees t-shirt and when we were there, we took a look around Monument Park. Uh, I don't really know how to describe it, but uh, those of you who don't know what Monument Park is, at least at the old Yankees stadium, there was, uh, I think it was kind of in the back of one of the sections. You could walk around and there are monuments to legendary Yankees players. And when we got to Mickey Mantle's little monument, My dad said, get a picture of me. I want a picture of myself with Mickey. So I snapped a picture of that, and I'll be more than happy to put that in the online bibliography at com. My mother told me that he was so happy about that. Even though the Yankees lost, he apparently had just an amazing time going to that game. My mom said he wouldn't shut up about that forever. He was also into golf. He played golf for fun, at least when he was younger. For for whatever reason, the last few years, he hardly ever touched a golf club. Interestingly, he had a set of left-handed golf clubs because he's a lefty. He was always a lefty. The only thing he ever did with his right hand was play guitar. And I asked him, I said, Dad, why didn't you just learn how to finger it left-handed like a lot of musicians do or even get a left-handed guitar? And he said, well, when I learned to play guitar left-handed guitars were almost impossible to find, so I just forced myself to learn right-handed. But uh, getting back to golf, uh, I know that he would go to the Bon Vivant golf course in Bourbonnais a lot and uh, the Mantino Sportsman's Club, and my brother would go with him a lot. I never went golfing with him because I don't like golf, unless there are windmills or alligators or something involved, <laughs> if you know what I mean. When we moved to Joliet, I think he would go to Inwood, which is the recreational facility that the park district owned, and I think there was another place called Woodruff that he would go to. When my parents moved to uh, Crest Hill, which is right next door to Joliet, by the way, in 2006, he played in a weekly rec league that that community had. Oh, I remember one year when my parents went to, to Clearwater Beach, Florida for vacation. They would do that every year for several years. And I would stay home and just watch the house, basically. I remember once he called me while they were on vacation to tell me that he scored a hole in one. And I thought that, even though I don't like golf, I thought that was just the coolest thing in the world. He was so excited about it. And uh, apparently what happened, he went to a Chichi Rodriguez course. And since he didn't know anybody, he was basically going by himself. But at golf courses, I guess they want you to have at least a foursome involved. So if... Parties fewer than four wanted to golf, the course would kind of group them up into fours. So he tees off and he looks for his ball. He can't find his ball. And somebody said, What are you doing? He said, I'm looking for my ball. And the guy said, I think that's it in the cup over there. He said, What? And sure enough, it was his ball. Now, I know nothing about how playing golf works. I mean, I know the rules and everything, but Apparently they make a huge deal out of it if you make a hole in one. Like they have you fill out a form, uh they have witnesses sign the form, so the other people in my dad's party had to sign it. And several weeks later he got a plaque in the mail congratulating him on his hole in one. And uh, that was just wild. That was that was pretty wild. Um I mentioned that I don't like golf. But my dad did go to the Western Open many times. He and my brother went a lot when it was held at Butler National Golf Club in uh, Westmont, Illinois, because we had a friend in Westmont that we'd uh, hang out with while he was over there. And then eventually they moved to Cog Hill in Lamont. Cog Hill is a pretty easy drive from Joliet. It's just about half hour up the street, really, from where we lived. And there were a couple of times I got him tickets as a uh, Father's Day present, so My dad and I went, I think, twice. And I gotta say, again, I don't like golf, but I really had a good time. It was really cool seeing this stuff happen in person. It's a hell of a lot different from watching it on TV, which, by the way, my dad did all the time, right up until the second he died, practically. If you went to my parents' house and my dad had the remote, you could pretty much bet your life savings that golf would be on. He'd have the golf channel, or he would find a tournament on another channel that wasn't the golf channel. Even when they'd come to visit us, he'd turn on the TV and watch golf. And oh my God, talk about boring. Ooh, actually, I don't want to talk about boring. He would watch football and basketball too, but I don't think he was as avid a fan of those. He'd watch the Bears and the Bulls, of course. And I'm pretty sure that my dad and I, every single time, all six times, the Bulls won the championship. I think we watched that game together. Oh, and not just the Bears, but when I was a junior in high school, my dad and I went to all of my school's football games, which was really cool that the both of us got to be there for all 14 of the victories. We were undefeated. We won state. That was awesome. And of course, when we got to the game, I would break off into the student section, but still, my dad later told me that that meant a lot to him, that we got to do that. And uh, yeah, that, that, was, that was really great. Uh, when I was a senior, uh, not so much because I was actually working for the team, so we didn't really travel together for the games. He'd come to a few of them, but that was about it. And I remember when we'd watch basketball, my dad would complain about slam dunking. He didn't like that. He said, oh, it doesn't really take any talent to slam dunk. You have to be tall enough, but that's about it. There's no skill involved. Back in my day, you actually had to shoot the ball. We didn't have any of the slam dunking. And the crazy thing about that is just this year, my dad was complaining about how NBA basketball just isn't as exciting anymore. He'd talk about how it's just not the same as watching Jordan and Magic Johnson. And then my brother said, wait a minute, dad when they were playing, you would complain about how they would always slam dunk and they wouldn't shoot the ball. And he didn't have anything to say about that. Other than that, I really don't know what else to say about my dad, except just some random things that I can remember about him. Like One thing that really sticks out is his fussy food habits. My dad was as meat and potatoes as you can get. He just liked basic American food. He wouldn't touch any other cuisine. No Chinese food, no Japanese food, no Mexican food, just American food. He wouldn't even eat rice. The first time they visited when uh, Lisa and I were in Jersey, Lisa made a really nice meal and there was rice involved in it. And my dad complained, oh, I don't like rice. And my mother, God bless her, said, Lisa worked so hard to make this meal, you're going to eat that rice. I did, I literally did not know that he wouldn't eat rice but he wasn't going to eat rice. He was very fussy. My mother likes to go out to Chinese restaurants and Mexican restaurants. My dad always ordered from that little corner of the menu to cater to people who can't eat non-American food. In his defense, he did say that at La Mex, which is my mother's favorite Joliet Mexican restaurant, they had the best New York strip steak he ever tasted. Whenever he'd go to the Chinese restaurant with my mom, he ordered Fried shrimp. I remember one time when I was with them and he ordered the fried shrimp. The lady said, do you want that American style? And he said, yes. And I swear that waitress rolled her eyes and my mother looked at her and said, I know, I know. The day after my dad died, my mom told me a story of how when he was in the Navy, I think he was in China, he was eating something and he commented to somebody, man, this is the best roast beef I've ever tasted. And he's really, really chowing down on it. Until somebody said, um, that's not roast beef, that's octopus. So what did my dad do? He stopped eating it and would refuse to eat anymore, even though he loved it. Didn't matter that he loved it, he just refused to eat it. Good lord. But that was my dad's fussy eating. Anytime we'd say, just try something Mexican. No, I had plenty of that when I was in the Navy. Even Taco Bell was too exotic for him. We'd be at a Chinese restaurant. Dad, for God's sakes, just try a little bit of chop suey or something. Oh, I had plenty of that when I was in the Navy. Even though, of course, in China, they wouldn't have had chop suey. That is a uh, United States invention. But anyway, let's not get into that right now. If he were left to fend for himself, what would he have? He'd just make himself a bowl of cornflakes for dinner. One thing that I remember very vividly was uh, one time when my mom was working at night. My dad and my brother and I, this was in the early 80s, I was a little kid, we were at home having dinner. I don't remember what I had, but my dad and my brother wanted to have the leftover chili. Now, as strict and hard-ass as my mother always was and is to this day, she gave in to how I refused to eat chili. Let me explain something. My mother doesn't like to cook, and my dad couldn't cook, so she was the default cook. And because she doesn't like cooking, she makes it as easy as possible. Her chili isn't made from scratch. It's made out of the can. I don't remember if it was Hormel or Hunt's or what, but it was disgusting and I refused to eat it. So whenever she made make chili, she'd make a hot dog or something for me. <laughs> Whatever I was eating that night, my dad and my brother decided to have leftover chili and they were eating it. And I just remember my dad saying, this tastes a little bit off. Does it taste a little bit sweet to you? And Scott was like, "Eh, I don't know. So they're eating it. And when my mom comes home, she said, so what'd you guys have for dinner? And my dad said, we had leftover chili. She said, what chili? There's no chili in there. We haven't had chili recently. What are you talking about? He said, well, then what was in that bowl? And she said, that wasn't chili, you idiot. That was spaghetti sauce. And it had been sitting there for two weeks. Now, mind you, I have no idea why it had been sitting there for two weeks without being thrown out. But yeah, my brother and my dad thought they were eating chili. It was spaghetti sauce. And she said, didn't you dumbasses realize that there weren't any beans in there? Chili has beans. And she went on and on and on about how, you know, you could die from that. And she said, give it 48 hours and you're really going to feel it. Now, Scott had said that 48 hours on the dot, suddenly his stomach was ready to fall out of his body. (laughs) Basically, if you were to ever have dinner with my father, don't let him be in charge of it. Something else I remember, this is not necessarily having to do with his picky food habits or anything, but sometime in the early 90s, I think it was the early 90s, my mom and dad and my brother Scott and I were having dinner. We had a jar of pickles on the table. My dad took one out and started eating it. And he said, these pickles don't taste quite right. They taste like cucumbers. And my mom just glared at him and said, Gary. And he said, oh, you know what I mean. I mean, it tastes like they just took cucumbers and put them in a jar. And when my dad said that, my brother seriously almost fell off of his chair. And I just said, very good, (laughs) dad. Yeah, dad was not the most advanced thinker in the world, or at least not the most forward thinker in the world. Like I, I think I mentioned he seldom touched a computer after he took those courses at JUCO, so he never learned the internet, he never learned what the web was. And I just remember just recently, I think it was back in February, that time when my mom said, hey, I want you to spend the night with your dad, just make sure that th- you know he can do things. One of the reasons that she wanted me to be there with him was he was recovering from surgery and he had some medical equipment that he had to maintain. And for whatever reason, he made my mom do all the maintenance on it. And she said, Well, since I'm not going to be there, someone has to do it. He has to learn. And she said, Just go on YouTube. There are plenty of videos that'll say what needs to be done. And my dad was being pretty fussy, pretty pissy. But I'm sitting there with my laptop open on the kitchen table and I'm showing him the videos thing is, my dad was one of the most stubborn people in the world. Like Everything had to be his way or else it just wasn't going to work. So, we looked up this piece of equipment that he had and it said, okay, here's what you can do. Now, the thing is, the videos were all kind of generalized. My dad just would not agree to any of it because he was looking at it and he said, well, that's not the same one I have. It didn't matter that the make and model that was in the video was not the same that he had because the concept of cleaning it and maintaining it and everything it was all still the same, but because his had an orange cap on it, but the one in the video had a purple, he's like, I can't, no, this isn't going to work. Or if we did find one that matched perfectly, he's like, well, this woman has a foreign accent. I can't make out a damn thing she said. That's despite the fact that I turned on the captioning. But at one point, you know, we realized it was seven o'clock. We hadn't eaten yet. So I said, hey, let's order some dinner. Now for a living, I'm a software engineer and I work on a food ordering site. I said, hey, we could just go to my site, we'll order some food. And he said, well, how much is that going to cost? And I said, well, nothing, because I have a stipend that gets replenished every quarter, so I can just use that and it won't cost me anything. So I showed him the menus and we agreed on what to order and all that, so I placed the order. And 15 minutes later, he said, by the way, when are you going to order the food? I said, dad, I ordered it. Well, I didn't see you use the phone or anything. And I said, dad, I just did it on the web. Oh, you did it on a computer? I didn't know you could do that. (sighs) Dad, you know what I do for a living. I've been doing it for eight years. What do you think I do? (laughs) And he said, well, you think they can find the place in the dark? (sighs) Yeah, nobody bothered to explain the concept of global positioning systems to my dad. In fact, while I was over there that night, I was reminded how my dad just couldn't function with normal everyday stuff by himself because my mother took care of all the that stuff. He couldn't even answer his freaking cell phone. He had a, uh, a Samsung, I think it was a Samsung Android phone. I saw him frantically trying to answer the thing. I said, dad, give me that. And I took the phone, swiped up, answered for him, handed him the phone back. He couldn't answer his own phone. <laughs> but the thing is, he assumed that his lack of technical expertise extended to everybody else. Case in point, when my dad uh, went to bed that night, I was staying up for a little bit longer. He goes to bed, probably about 15 minutes later, my phone rings, and it's my dad. And I'm thinking, oh God, what happened? Is something wrong? Is he calling me in there to rescue him from something? But I answer it, and he said, I forgot to tell you, here's what you do to turn the TV off. Good grief. Dad, thank you for telling me that because in my 46 years in this planet, I never operated a television set and cable box. That wasn't the first time I got a call from inside the house that night. After I ordered dinner, my dad excused himself to the bathroom, and five minutes later, my cell phone rings and it's my dad. And of course, I'm thinking, oh God, what happened? Did he fall off or something? He can't get up? Oh, good Lord, what's he want? I answer the phone. I forgot to tell you there's tea in the fridge. Thanks, Dad. You couldn't wait ten minutes to tell me face-to-face that there's tea in the refrigerator. <laughs> Good Lord. The next day, we picked my mom up after surgery, and when we got to their house, and my dad excused himself, probably to go to the bathroom, I said, Mom, you did the right thing by having me come over here. Now, I gotta ask you something. How did that man ever cope with being alone? How did he deal with raising a toddler when you were working night shifts? And she said, oh, I'll tell you exactly what he did. Now, the story that she told me was one night she was working at the hospital, St. Mary's Hospital, where she did her nurse's training and where my brothers and I were born, and they only had one car. So, she was expecting my dad to pick her up after she was done. Well, her shift ends. She goes outside. My dad's not there, so she's thinking, oh, whatever, he's just a little late. So she waits five minutes, nothing. Ten minutes, nothing. She goes back inside, calls home. There's no answer. So she's getting kind of worried. A co-worker drove her home, and when she walked inside, she saw my dad on the floor asleep, and my brother Scott in diapers, curled up in the corner, asleep and she didn't know what happened. She didn't know if he escaped and hurt himself and knocked himself out or if he just happened to be left out and just curled up and slept. But she said she kicked my dad in the head repeatedly till he woke up and called him every name in the book. (laughs) And uh, apparently that was a common tale in uh, that house, which doesn't surprise me at all. Basically, my dad falling asleep when he shouldn't have been falling asleep. He fell asleep extremely easily. One of my grandfather's earliest memories of him was of him falling asleep while they were talking. Yeah, your dad did that the first time I met him. I'm thinking, what the hell is going on here? It wasn't narcolepsy or anything. He just fell asleep easily. That's all. <laughs> Oh, one other technical anecdote that I want to mention here. For the longest time, here's how things worked in the Chicago area, at least northern Illinois, in terms of area codes. Basically, the Chicago area had the area code 312. That's how it was for many years. And surrounding 312, on the north, the west, and the south, you had 815. The two places where I lived as a child, Bourbonnais and Joliet, those were both 815. All my relatives, at least on my mom's side, and I didn't really know my dad's side very well, but all my relatives on my mom's side, 312, because they all lived in the Chicago suburbs. So naturally, we would dial 312 whenever we'd call any of them. Well, sometime in the mid-80s, it was announced that 312 was breaking up into different area codes. 312 was going to be just the city of Chicago. Everything else that was 312 would become 708. Now, my father couldn't quite figure this out for some reason. I remember this conversation happening between my parents. Dad would say, So whenever we call Philip, that's my Uncle Phil, my mother's baby brother, for some reason he was always the example in my dad's theoretical situations, so when we call Philip, we still dial 312, right? And my mother would say, well, no, because 312 is just Chicago, so you would have to dial 708. And my dad would say, well, yes, but Philip lives in the Chicago area. And my mother would say, Gary, Glen Ellen is not Chicago. And my dad would say, but it's the Chicago area, so would we still dial 312? repeat variations of this back and forth over and over and over with my mother's voice getting louder and much more irritated with every back and forth. Yeah, it took a while. My dad eventually did figure it out, though. (laughs) Oh my goodness, I don't remember what happened when 708 split up into 847 and 630, but... (laughs) Oh, well, he survived somehow. But that was my dad. Very simple. But again, I mean, yeah, the la- that last little anecdote I told, those last few anecdotes seem to have a little bit of frustration behind them. But please, just know that those are just anecdotes and nothing more. Something else I remember about my dad was that, uh, for some reason, I thought it would be a good idea sometimes to break bad news to him. And by bad news, I mean if I got a bad grade or something, because... He wouldn't be as harsh as my mom. And of course, every time I tried that, I found out the hard way. <laughs> he knew damn well to never not tell my mom about something. So within seconds, <laughs> hey, Sylvia, come here. It's, oh, jeez, dad, shut up. Let me live. Let me live. <laughs> and between my parents, my dad was the one who was more tolerant of my video game love. <laughs> I mean, my mom was tolerant, but if we were at the mall, my dad would take me to Aladdin's castle at Lincoln Mall. When it was just my mom and me, she wouldn't. (laughs) In fact, sometimes my dad shared that with me at home. Sometimes he would play Atari games with me. It was usually just uh, what he would call action games like Pac-Man and Ms. Pac-Man. And the reason for that was because, well, like I said before, he was very left-handed. The Atari controller was right-handed. You had to control the stick with your right hand and the fire button with your left hand. That's how most video games were until Nint... I'm not going to go off onto that rant right now. And he would play games like Super Breakout, too. The games that required the paddle controller because, uh, well, I know... The Atari 2600 sold millions and millions of units, but I can't assume everybody knows what I'm talking about, but the paddle controller, which some games like Super Breakout required, you had the rotary controller, and then on the left side of the controller, you had the fire button. Well, the way that the paddle controller was designed was that my dad could play left-handed with it. He would just put the rotary in his left hand and he could actually wrap his fingers around and use the fire button that way because the fire button was on the side of the controller, but on the joystick, it was on the, uh, flat top of it. So that's why the uh, joystick controller wasn't good for him on games that required the button. But we spent time together doing it. And there was at least one time at Aladdin's castle, uh, The way things usually worked was when I'd go to Aladdin's castle, my dad would give me a dollar allowance, and that was four tokens. And that was that. No more. If I really wanted to play some more, sorry, too bad you used up your dollar. If I found a stray token on the floor or something, or Scott had a couple of tokens he wasn't going to use, that was one thing, but my dad wasn't going to give me any more money. But there was one, maybe two times when he wanted to play Ms. Pac-Man with me, which meant, hey, two-player game, Two tokens, so I only got to play three games. But I, I don't know. Somehow, I did not feel it was my place to complain about that. My dad seriously was a really, really good guy. He seriously was. But just one more anecdote that I'm going to talk about before the music for Snooks segment. I figured I'd end on something musical. I have been a fan of the Monkees. That is M O N K E E S, the band, the artificial band formed by Don Kirshner. (laughs) since 1987. For those of you who don't know, they did a movie in 1968 and it was called Head. Now, it was a very bizarre movie. It was in a very strange way telling the story of how the band formed, or should I say how the band was formed, and how they struggled for independence to get away from the artistic limitations they were under. But the problem was that story was told through a filter of a screenwriter named Jack Nicholson, who was probably given about eight bags of pot when he wrote the script, and it shows. So, it's a really strange movie. I love it, by the way, and the music in it is fantastic. I think it was 1992 when I finally saw it. I was watching it on AMC. Now, I should explain a little bit. In our house in Joliet, we lived in a pretty big house. Upstairs was my bedroom. My brother's bedroom, of course, until he moved out, and a decommissioned kitchen that we didn't use. And when you walk through that kitchen and you go through the other door, you're in a really small room. And we referred to it as the TV room because that's where we kept a TV and a couch and a love seat and a coffee table. My dad's habit was probably around 10 o'clock. He would come upstairs to watch TV, but he'd end up falling asleep almost every single time. And that drove my mother freaking nuts. She hated that. That's a bad habit, she would tell him. Of course, the few times he actually did not fall asleep and went to bed after a while, my mother would complain the next day. Oh, I didn't sleep at all last night because your father's snoring. Uh, This is, by the way, probably why when they moved into their latest house, they had separate bedrooms. But anyway, I'm sitting there watching head... And probably about 15 20 minutes into the movie, my dad walks in with a giant glass of Pepsi. That was another thing. He'd always bring a giant glass of Pepsi with him, and he'd take two sips of it and he'd fall asleep before he'd get a chance to drink any more of it. Waste of Pepsi and ergo money as far as I'm concerned. Not that I care for Pepsi myself, but so I'm watching head and he's kind of just sitting there watching what I'm watching, and probably about 5 minutes into what he's seeing, he just says, "What the hell is this?" <laughs> I I didn't want to try to explain it to him, so I just said, Dad, if you want to watch something else, go right ahead. (laughs) I guess I should have just said, there was a lot of pot involved in this movie, which maybe he didn't need to be told. But hey, that was my dad, and I don't know what further to say, I mean, other than the obvious, that I love him very much, I miss him, and I'm also just super glad that I had him for as long as I did, because I really didn't think I would. And I guess that's why I really have not been all that sad. There's just so much positivity involved. Now, when we were planning the funeral, the church told my mom that they need some anecdotes, some funny stories possibly to use for the homily, because that's when there'd be some kind of a eulogy. And so I thought of a lot of the stories that I actually talked to you listeners about, and I started typing them up in an email to send to my mom. And at the end of my email, I said, hey, um, If they want something that's just a nice story, do you think it might be worth mentioning the time he and I went to Yankee Stadium? And mom responded to that part and said, that was probably the best day of his life. (laughs) Uh, I disagree. I really think that he had better days. Case in point, when my niece was born. Both my parents, my mom and my dad, were just... I've, I've never seen anybody so ecstatic than when my niece was born. Which makes me think, okay... If they're that happy when my brother's daughter was born, how happy were they when their own kids were born? And I especially think, God, Dad must have been really happy when I was born, because unlike with their previous son, I was born healthy, and here I am 46 years later. Sadly, Jay was only around for six months, but must have been a huge sigh of relief to find out that I was healthy and I I really don't know what more to say about that other than I can only imagine how happy he must have been. Now, the things that I said about how simple, basic, whatever my dad was, I should disclaim he actually was a pretty intelligent guy. Specifically, I think math was a particular strong point of his. I was always impressed at how quickly he was able to calculate numbers in his head, for example. And I guess that's one reason why he did a monthly budget right up to his dying day and kept very strictly to it. And I remember he told me that he took a course over at H&R Block to learn how to prepare taxes. Uh, He never actually used what he learned, though. He still took his taxes to the same H&R block office in Kankakee right up to this year. Why he felt he needed to do that, I don't know. My mother said, oh, your dad's always been very stubborn. You know that. (laughs) And he did have some foresight too. Like I remember the day that my dad died, one of the many things that was stressing my mom out was, oh my God, I got to do this. I got to do that. I have to figure out what to do with his life insurance. I have to figure out how to handle his pension. Well, the next day, she found a box that my dad years ago hinted that he had in his bedroom that had all kinds of important documents. And there was a letter that he had written her in 2006 that said, in case something ever happens to me, here are some things you need to know. Here's the number to call about my pension. Here's the number to call about my life insurance, etc., etc." And that impressed her that he had the foresight to do that. And literally two days before, he had told her that he always kept $200 in his wallet just in case of emergency. So, she went through his wallet and found two dollars bills, each folded very clandestinely, embedded within a paper, within another paper, within another paper. And that really impressed me, actually, that he thought to do that and that he did it in such a clever way. Well, thank you for allowing me to just, I don't know, just ramble on about things I remember about my dad. What you heard is by far not all I remember. It's just, I gotta remember, this is a freaking podcast, and I don't want to take up so much of your time, especially because I also want to talk about music. Well, this next segment of Music for Schnooks is very inspired by my dad. And probably for the first time since I've been doing this podcast, this Music for Snooks segment is about something I was never truly a fan of, but at least I have some great respect for this kind of music. For this, I don't know, I shouldn't say kind of music, this artist. I'm going to call this segment, I Remember Glen Campbell. What can you say about a guy who had a TV show called the Glen Campbell Good Time Hour? Watch any video of Glen Campbell, especially of him giving an interview. He seemed cheerful, happy, jocular. Certainly with the attitude and charm he exuded, Campbell could come from nowhere else but a town called Delight. Can I say I was ever a fan? Hmm. I can't say that I particularly was. His kind of music just wasn't my thing. But I guess you can say I always respected him. Campbell was an amazing musician, with a singing voice to Envy. And is still on the line. My first exposure to Glen Campbell was via my father. I remember being a toddler in the mid-70s when Dad would commandeer the Zenith stereo, I vividly remember those times. Mom was either at work, out shopping, or downstairs watching TV, while Dad was in the living room, lying down on his side with the green shag carpeting, his upper body propped up slightly by the positioning of his right arm. He'd be drinking a glass bottle of Pepsi and likely smoking a cool, possibly even reading the newspaper or the liner notes from the record currently playing right there in front of the Zenith. Ah, yes, the old Zenith. I have talked about that on this podcast before, but uh, it was probably close to what you'd imagine a sound system of the time. It was a large, dark, wood-grain, trapezoid-shaped cabinet that looked like a piece of furniture. It's still in their house, actually, two homes later, and it's currently in use as a platform for a statue my mother has. But under the lid, the Zenith has an AM-FM radio on the left and an automatic stackable four-speed turntable on the right. In the left corner behind the radio tuner and on-off mode selector, that was where my parents would store a stack of singles. No sleeves, just the bare, unprotected records. Oh my god, it really hurts me to say that. Man, what were you people thinking? Put those things in sleeves and don't stack 'em. Ah. Anyway, I'm sorry my friends, um, but uh, this was before we had playlists and even mixtapes were still a relatively new concept, but my dad had a certain mix of singles he would play in order, the same order every time. I don't remember the order, but I do remember a few of the songs. In fact, I do believe I spoke about this in chapter 20, but I'm going to talk about it again. Thank you very much. There was Barry Manilow's I Write the Songs. That was in the regular rotation. I hated it when Dad played that song. Nothing against the song itself, but the dynamics bugged me. The song starts out with a mellow pattern of piano chords, but then suddenly a loud orchestral crash. It was that crash that would startle me. I eventually learned how to move to the far end of another room when my dad would play the song. It was safe once the main body of the song started, of course. Also on the rotating singles was another Barry, Barry White that is, Love's Theme by Love Unlimited Orchestra. Dad had this in his collection because the tune would be played on TV during Western Open broadcasts when going into and out of commercial breaks. Actually, that wasn't the only televised golf tournament song that my dad had. Sometime in the mid-80s when my brother was in the army, he was stationed in Fort Gordon, Georgia, located right outside of Augusta, where the Masters is traditionally held. He bought dad a copy of Dave Loggins's song, Augusta, which is the song that was played on the Masters broadcasts when going into and out of commercial breaks. I don't know if that's still a thing. I don't know if they still play that tune. One thing I have to say is it really does bother me that in the Peanuts strips when Snoopy was trying to get to the Masters, Charlie Brown kept referring to it as Atlanta, which is nowhere near Augusta. But anyway, uh, let me get back to the topic at hand, shall we? And that's Love's theme. Uh, it took me until recently to realize that uh, despite how dated the production is, it's really a good piece of music. And so help me, dear God... Another song Dad had in rotation? It's... I can't believe I have to say this again, but it is so painful to talk about it. Feelings. Nothing more than feelings. Feelings by Morris Albert imagine growing up and hearing that song on a regular basis. Oh, why, Dad, why? But getting back on topic here, I seem to remember that the first song on the Stack-O singles was See You on Sunday by Glenn Campbell. It's a song from his 1976 album, Bloodline. I never really paid close attention to the song until recently, The you mentioned in the title of the song is a five-year-old child, and the Sunday occasion was post-divorce visitation. Somehow, I don't think the lyrics spoke to my dad, because he and my mom had a pretty solid marriage since the beginning. But I remember hearing that song all the time, the first of the, well, let's face it, playlist I remember seeing that orange label with the gold capital text on the bottom, black text on the rest of the label. Dad also had Rhinestone Cowboy in his singles collection. I don't recall that song necessarily being part of Dad's repeating stack, but it did get frequent spins on the zenith. Perhaps the biggest childhood memory of hearing Glenn Campbell was my dad playing Glenn's 1973 album I Remember Hank Williams. Just about any Hank Williams song I can recognize is because of hearing that album extremely frequently, and I'm convinced that he still would have been playing that album all the time if it weren't for that Zenith being in use as a statue holder. But when I saw Dad take out the album with a black and white picture of Glenn as a child performing with his uncle, I knew to expect the opening violin strains and Glenn's strong yet mellow voice... Singing, I could, never be ashamed of you. Darling, I could never be ashamed of you. My dad once told me that when I was a wee child, we would sing that together while he'd give me a bath. But I honestly don't remember that. From his telling, I totally got the lyrics wrong. But hey, I was three years old. As it happens to be, it turns out that most diehard Glenn Campbell fans. Don't consider, I remember Hank Williams to be among Glenn's best work. Such is the way when it comes to my dad. (laughs) Now, during the days of hearing, I remember Hank Williams, dad worked full-time, and I seem to remember mom only worked part-time, but sometimes when both had to work, they would have the next-door neighbors, with whom we were good friends, babysit me. I remember one day when I was over at their house, Mrs. Marillette said she wanted to listen to some music. She pulled out a record, and I recognized its orange label with gold text on the bottom and black text on the rest of the label. Oh, Mrs. Marillot has the same Glen Campbell record Dad has, my toddler mind thought. So, she put the record on the turntable, and I was expecting the violin opening of I Could Never Be Ashamed of You, so naturally, I heard... Round, round, get around, I, I get, get, around, get around, yeah, get, get around, around, round, 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 I I get around, get around, round, I get around, I get around the hell is this crap, my mind wondered. I couldn't stand the sound of that singer's voice. And then when the other singers came in, it was too busy and cluttered for my little ears to handle. So, that was my first exposure to the Beach Boys, and I hated that song. To this day, I hate I Get Around. Years later, I found out that Glenn Campbell actually played a six-string bass on that song as a session player, so technically, I was. Listening to Glenn Campbell, little did I know that I would grow up to be a big fan of the Beach Boys, especially Brian Wilson. It's common knowledge that Glenn temporarily took Brian's place on stage in 1965, and as a thank-you gift to Glenn, Brian would write, produce, and perform on Glenn's song Guess I'm Dumb, a classic Brian Wilson masterpiece. The way I, I don't As I got older, I would learn of Glenn's importance in popular music. He was, of course, part of the typically assembled group of Hollywood studio musicians known as, depending on whom you ask, the First Call Gang, the Click, or the Wrecking Crew. And ergo, his talent appears on more songs than we'll ever know. And countless solo albums from the mid-60s up until shortly before his death from Alzheimer's. What an amazing talent, fantastic singing voice, killer guitar player, and in fact by all accounts, even when the Alzheimer's took away his ability to communicate with people, he could still play a guitar like nobody's business. Only recently I learned he could even play bagpipes! A video exists of Glenn performing the Wings classic, Mull of Kintyre, and he actually played the bagpipes during the instrumental break. Was there anything that man couldn't do? Mull of Kintyre When Glenn Campbell found out he had Alzheimer's, he decided that while he still had his wits, he wanted to do a farewell tour. That tour was a raging success, and by the time it was ready to wrap up, he still felt well enough to perform, so the tour actually got extended several times. His last date was in Napa. His last tour date was in Napa in California, and it was, I think, at that time when he and his family kind of realized he couldn't perform anymore because he was performing very erratically. He opened with Gentle on My Mind, and it started off with Glenn ranting for like five or ten minutes about how his head was itching or something, and they decided, yep, this is the end of it. He's retiring as of tonight. At some point after his diagnosis, he wrote a song called I'm Not Gonna Miss You. It's a short song. It's only a couple of minutes, and he recorded it with fellow Wrecking Crew musicians Don Randy, Hal Blaine, and Joe Osborne. Uh, might have been one or two other people I don't remember off the top of my head. i never gonna know what you go One thing so I'm not gonna miss you. But it was... Kind of a, a slightly heartbreaking, straightforward song about what was going on in Glenn's mind. There was a whole documentary that CNN aired called I'll Be Me. And the reason it was called I'll Be Me is simply because of something that Glenn said in the documentary. I asked my dad if he watched it, and he said, yeah, he he absolutely watched it. What more can I say but that's Glenn Campbell? Was he my dad's favorite musician? I really don't know. To be honest, I don't know if my dad ever had a single favorite performer. He liked Glen Campbell, and the thing is, he had a stack of Glen Campbell records from the 60s. I think he had the Gentle On My Mind album, because I distinctly remember seeing an album with a picture of Glen Campbell and a 12-string on the cover, and I know that one has it. There was another album called A New Place in the Sun that was in his collection, but the only Glen Campbell records I ever remember him playing were the I Remember Hank Williams album, the Rhinestone Cowboy single, and the See You On Sunday single. Dad's musical interests leaned toward country. He liked Alabama. I know that he listened to a little tiny bit of Willie Nelson. In fact, one of the songs on the regular rotation was Luke and Bach, Texas by Waylon Jennings with special guest Willie Nelson. Let's go. He This successful life we're just, like the Hatfields and the he listened to Ronnie Millsap, uh, I think Charlie Pride, Juice Newton, Keith Whitley. Oh, who was the one that Keith Whitley was Lori Morgan, Lori Morgan. Yeah, Keith Whitley was married to Lori Morgan. He listened to Lori Morgan a lot. I want to say he might have listened to Vince Gill, and off the top of my head, that's all I can think about at this point, but I wanted to mention Glenn Campbell because that's something that really sticks out in my memory. I guess basically because most of the time when he played Glenn Campbell records, it was at that time of my life that I really needed a lot of supervision because I was a little kid. So I was always there, I was always in the living room or near the living room, so it's just what I remember. I had actually written this script a long time ago, actually back when Glenn Campbell was still alive. This was before I even conceived of this podcast, but I wrote it down because I wanted to post either on Facebook or a blog, just something in tribute to Glenn Campbell. And of course, I figured it would also be kind of a nice tribute to my dad, to bring this back in the form of a podcast segment. I don't know if he ever got to see him perform in person. But to be honest, I almost wish that I had, because the man was insanely talented. Watch any video of his on YouTube and just be prepared to sit in awe of his amazing talent. I'll always remember my dad, of course, and I remember Glenn Campbell. I remember when I was a senior in college and I was doing my weekly Beach Boys show on the college's radio station. One night when I got home, uh, I was a commuter student, so I didn't live on campus, I lived at my parents' house. I got home and I told my dad, hey, I played Glenn Campbell tonight. He said, oh really? What'd you play? I said, guess I'm dumb. He said, guess I'm dumb. I I don't think I ever heard of that one. (laughs) But yeah, that was it. Uh, That's that's what I had to say about music and um, that's all I had to say about my dad for now, other than obviously I miss him. I love him. He's my dad you know he's a great man uh he was a great father a very loving grandfather and very devoted husband i try to be a devoted husband too because i have the most amazing wife in the world lisa has been just oh my god i cannot possibly explain how wonderful she's been how supportive she's been how helpful she's been and my mother has been very grateful for her support too so I don't know. I guess my dad and I were just both extremely lucky. We're extremely lucky. Uh, Oh... Oh, yeah. I should tell you about how to contact me, should you want to contact me. My email address is autobio at schnookpodcast.com. And the um, online bibliography, as I call it, some people call it show notes. I call it online bibliography because this is essentially a book and podcast form. So, hey, why not use book terms, online bibliography, schnookpodcast.com. And schnookpodcast is also my Instagram handle, and I seldom use Instagram. Um, I don't know if I should apologize or say, screw you. It's my Instagram. I'll do what I want with it. <laughs> and my Twitter handle is also Schnook Podcast, and uh, Facebook is Facebook.com/schnookpodcast. Or go to Facebook and look for Autobiography of a Schnook in the Facebook search engine. Oh, oh yeah, and the uh, the legal stuff too. Um, even though I composed the opening and closing theme music, and composed and recorded the transitional music, there might be some sounds and music interspersed throughout this podcast. That is not mine, and those sounds and music remain the property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Said sounds and music are there for review and commentary. And as usual, I thank my wife Lisa for her undying support, her amazing support. And of course, thank you to Gary J. Courtney for being an amazing dad. And, hey, the good definitely goes around. And I feel very blessed, very fortunate to have had the good of my father around for almost 47 years. I'll uh, talk to you one more time before my summer hiatus. And uh, all the best, my friends. Thanks for listening. I remember seeing that dark orange label with the gold capital text on the... It wasn't all that dark. Hmm. Let's forget that dark part. Let's see. Highlight. Dark. Delete. He bought Dad a copy of Dave Logan's son. Son? Bought, oh, God, no. Goodness, no. There wasn't any, like, mail-order children in this way. Sorry about that. I vividly remember those times. Either Mom was at work, out shopping, or downstairs watching TV. Second Puberty.